Hey, welcome to Gospel Community Sermon Podcast. Thanks for listening in. We hope that uh, you enjoy what you hear and that we handle the word faithfully. We'd invite you, if you have any questions or want to attend a service, to visit www.gcctroy.com. That through the prophets, moved by the Holy Spirit, and the preachers who preached that, empowered by the Holy Spirit, he's packed all of that into this word, therefore. And it's in light of this salvation that Peter starts giving us these commands that he's going to give us. And before he even kind of gets to the first command in verse 13, he wants to give us two qualifiers. He wants to give us these these divine kind of uh, qualifiers that are there for us. And so he gives those. He says we should be prepared for action and sober-minded. Peter states these as participles, right? If you remember, participles are verbs that act like adjectives, right? And so he gives us these two participles to help us understand the nuance of his main command, set your hope. When we set our hope, we're supposed to be preparing our minds for actions, and we're supposed to be sober-minded. So he starts first. He says, prepare your minds for action. This is literally in the Greek. It's the idea of girding up your loins. Now, we don't talk about our loins much in the 21st century, so we might need to unpack exactly what Peter's talking about. And so I found this helpful diagram, right? If you were to dress like this, this is what it means to gird up your loins, right? They're going to show off the white meat, the man thigh, right? And so we gird up our dress, as it were, and we get ready uh, to engage. This is what he's talking about. He's preparing your minds. Gird up your minds for action. The ESV note, girding up the loins of your mind. Peter wants us to set our hope with a mental readiness. He wants us to to have our mind focused so that our hope is set so that we have a mental readiness toward holiness. The second part of participles, be sober-minded. In fact, the word is just really just sober, right? Peter's telling us not to be intoxicated, not to be overly influenced by anything else. This isn't just a prohibition against alcohol. This is kind of a metaphor for having no outside influence that would kind of deter you from a fully set hope upon Jesus Christ. It's a prohibition against a divided heart, as it were. But Peter gives us the commandment then, coming up next, he says, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That is, we should, in every conceivable way, bank upon the coming reward of Christ. Or we might state it negatively. There should be nothing outside of Jesus' future reward that we look forward to. Notice how Peter uses this term, set your hope Fully. It's the word telos. It means perfect or to the end. And in Peter's statement, everything that exists in this life is subservient to this single end, looking forward to Jesus' appearing. Peter's advocating for a full throated life of faith. You know, faith is like a parachute. You don't use a parachute unless you absolutely trust it's going to work. You don't kind of jump out of the plane and say, I don't know about this one. When you jump, (laughs) you don't have any backup plans. The parachute is your plan, and there's nothing else. 
Christianity only makes sense when we use it as our only hope. We have no backup plans. All we have is the righteousness of Christ provided for us through his death and resurrection. All we have is our faith in one who stands before the Father and advocates on our behalf. That's all we got. And notice what Peter's point is to, to, to to point to the grace at Jesus' return that will be ours. Peter isn't just telling us to add a little bit of Jesus to our existence to make this life uh, more palatable. He isn't just telling us to look for this hashtag blessed life. He's telling us to look forward to future blessing in Jesus' return. You know, our world holds out false hopes all the time. We hope in dead things, don't we? From the time that Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, they thought that they could be like God. We have placed our hope in things that would die. I don't know if you saw it this week. There was a, a story on Yahoo News about a cult leader named Amy Carlson. Anybody see this? Amy Carlson was something like 45 years old. She was part of the cult or leader of the cult known as Love Has Won. She was known to those in the cult as Mother God. And she believed herself to be billions of years old and the physical progeny of Donald Trump. I don't know how those things come together, but they do in the crazy person's mind. What happened is the authorities were called when one of uh, the members of this organization came home to find Carlson's dead body in their house. It had been mummified, the eyeballs had been removed, all kinds of other things, and there she was, wrapped in a sleeping bag and covered with Christmas lights. They, they put glitter on her eyes to make her look normal. It just reminds me that every world religion worships something dead, doesn't it? You can go to the grave of Muhammad. You can visit the remains of Buddha. You can go find Amy Carlson's dead body. But our tendency is always to worship something dead. But the tomb where Jesus Christ was laid is still empty. See, Peter has told us that we have a living hope in Christ. Our hope is alive. And now Jesus is the firstborn of the dead, and he has been raised that we also might be raised, according to Philippians 3. Got a text from my wife this morning. She mentioned how refreshing it is to think that Tiffany's last Sunday here she heard about the living hope that we have in Jesus Christ. And I know many of us will miss Tiffany, but we recognize that she participates in something far more glorious than we can ever understand right now. We get the sense from Peter's argument here that Peter wants us to press in a bit further. He doesn't want to just leave us here in verse 13. He wants to unpack this further and kind of invite us into something different. Yes, we need to set our hope on the coming Christ, but this is to the end that we would be holy as God is holy, according to verses 14 through 16. Look at verse 14. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy." Peter tells them, hey, don't live like you used to. 
And when Peter calls them obedient children, it's not invoking the picture of this kind of good little Johnny, this good little kid. That's not what Peter is saying. Peter is saying that you were parented by obedience, that you were brought into the earth by, or into this life of faith, excuse me, by your obedience to the gospel. That when you were born in faith, you were born to the household obedience. Not that we were really good. Rather, we were born into the family through our faith in Christ. In fact, Peter will go on to say that we were born of imperishable seed. And not to get too far into this, but we were born of the sperm of the gospel in Jesus Christ. We were birthed into faith by our willing response to the gospel message. And so what Peter says next is is fitting. You were born out of obedience. And so he says, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Peter's saying, if you were born by obedience, don't be conformed to passions. In fact, Peter highlights their former way of life. Imagine uh, you're this uh, person in Asia Minor who has come to faith in Jesus Christ, and for most of your life, you've lived in just blatant paganism. So what they were worshiping was this idea of of actually uh, bowing down before little statuettes to control their universe. They would bow before the god of the harvest in order to control the harvest. They would bow before the god or goddess of fertility in order to control their fertility. And so when Peter mentions their former ignorance, it wasn't just about worshiping former gods. It also involved kind of all of the trappings of this kind of secular life. See, it also encompassed the things that were formerly in bounds, but now are decidedly out of bounds for the Christian. It was sexual promiscuity, drunkenness, unloving attitudes. All of these things weren't fitting for the Christian, but were quite in keeping for the pagan. In fact, Peter was going to lay a higher standard in verses 15 and 16. He says that we should put on holiness. The quotation in verse 16 Uh, could have come from any number of places in in the law, specifically in the books of Leviticus and Exodus. But one that stands out in particular is Exodus 19, where, where God is calling his people to separate themselves from the world around them because of their righteous conduct, because of their righteous standards. See, phrase even goes beyond that command. In verse 15, where the command is, be holy, verse 16 actually is a a future tense indicative, meaning you will someday be holy. That is, Peter isn't highlighting something we should be. He's telling us something we will be. Peter is telling us that Christians brought into the presence of God will be holy. And if we are someday going to be fully holy, why not live it now? So if first century Joe Christian was to pull Peter aside and say, why should I obey the commandments? Why should I try to live in holiness and righteousness? Peter would give him two answers. First, you were brought into Christian faith by obedience to the gospel. And you will be holy in God's presence in the future. So right now, be holy. Your past is obedience. Your future is holiness. Why not walk in holiness now? See, as we pull back from these verses, our hope 
stands out. Our hope is the difference between holiness and moralism. See, in Christ, the motive for action is as important as the action themselves. Listen to how God defines sin on two different occasions in the New Testament. In 1 John 3, John writes, Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. So what is sin? Sin is lawlessness. It's the idea that I don't have an authority outside of myself. I can do as I please to do. Thank you. Or Romans 14, 23. Whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats because the eating is not from the flesh. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. So you and I, we often think about sin as the bad things we do, the places we've crossed the line. The, uh, God commands us not to lust, and when we lust, we, we sin. God commands us not to lie, and when we tell half-truths, we are lying. But what God says to us in his word is that any action that doesn't pr- proceed from a faith-filled heart falls short of God's righteous standard. And what happens then is that Jesus died to change our motives, to change our heart, to change the impetus that draws us to holiness. Paul tells us that the old things have have gone, that new things have come in 2 Corinthians 5. Our newness in Christ demands new action. It's not just possible for us to be living, it's actually impending upon us to be living in holiness. See, holiness is fitting for saints. I'm afraid that modern-day Christianity and I myself at times have muted God's design for holiness. In an effort to make salvation about grace, we have made Christian holiness the fine print of the gospel. There are unstated parts of the Christian life that we're called to uh, that we sometimes kind of bury those in the fine print. The truth is that if we are in Christ, we naturally desire holiness. See, the Christian longs to be like Christ, to put on his character and relive his life. See, if you and I, we find that God's commands are burdensome, we find that they wear on us and grind on us, Something's wrong. See, if that's happening in us, the gospel is somehow short-circuited in our heart. The message of Christ has not sunk into the deepest recesses of our heart. See, there are Christians who sin, but then they are moved to guilt. But when we sin without guilt, we should be deeply concerned. We should have a sense of, of, of fear that God may not be with us. See, there's two possible realities underneath that. Either one, we are not a Christian, or two, we have become callous to our sin. Both situations need remedy. See, thus far, Peter's words probably fit our expectations, don't they? We would anticipate that Peter, in writing a letter, would call us to set our hope on Christ and to walk in holiness. But the next part really kind of grinds against us. How is it that we be afraid. Because that's Peter's final commandment in this section here in verses 17 through 21 is to be afraid. Look at verse 17 with me. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourself with fear 
throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundations of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. There it is. Verse 17 gives us the command, right? Conduct yourselves with fear. But notice it's precluded by two statements in that, in that verse. First, God is our Father. And second, that God is our Judge. And so we have this kind of father judge, and he judges impartially, as the text says, according to each one's deeds. And we can kind of naturally raise an objection here, can't we? We can say, Peter must be speaking of the unrighteous. Peter's speaking about those unsaved people that are going to be judged. But we keep in mind here that Peter's called these people, his recipients, elect exiles. That he's spoken almost entirely and exclusively to Christians throughout this letter as he's described the gospel. So it doesn't seem to make much sense in the context for him to be suddenly talking about non-Christians and then using inclusive pronouns. See, the Bible doesn't bear out this reality that Christians would go without judgment. I want to read some passages, and they'll be on the screen. The Bible describes a whole world judgment. Revelation chapter 20. I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which was the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. That is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Peter, or Paul tells us the same thing in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. He says, For we all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or bad. Paul describes the, our works that they will appear before God and anything found to have survived the fire, uh, is, the fire of his scrutiny will be rewarded by God in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. We might stop and and object again. Wait, I thought we were saved by grace through faith. How is it that we're facing a judgment according to our works? Well, we'd say absolutely we're saved by grace through faith. The Christian is saved by faith alone in Jesus Christ alone, and his works then will show forth his or her renewed life in the quality of his works. Works motivated by the lordship of Jesus in the life of the Christian will show that we have set our hope on Christ. And the non-Christian will show no change of heart, a life that always terminates on itself. See, it's here that Peter calls us to this holy fear. See, our fear, as John Piper has kind of summarized it, he says, what we are to fear is not hoping in God. What we are to fear is not hoping in God. If our hope is not fully set on grace, like verse 13 said we should, we might be surprised that the judgment of the living and the dead, ours will not be reward but judgment from a righteous and holy God. Thank God that Peter doesn't just leave us there. 
And he brings some balance in verses 18 through 21. Peter states that the means uh, that we are ransomed in verse 18. And he states the, re- the, the means of this ransom both positively and negatively. We're not redeemed by perishable things like gold and silver. Instead, we're bought with the precious blood of Christ in verse 19. Yes, we are to fear judgment, but those who are ransomed are purchased by Jesus' blood. As John would say, perfect love casts out fear. Verses 20 through 21 kind of change gears a little bit. And it's the idea that God has brought us into an age of redemption. That God, in this particular moment, in this particular time, has shown us how he is redeeming his people Peter goes to to lengths to speak of this moment where Christ was made manifest. And verse 21 tells us that he uh, he was made manifest so that we might become believers in God. Peter highlights that now is the time of belief. We are to fear that we're not actually believers. For those who are believers, there is nothing to fear. This is a lot to take in, isn't it? What Peter calls us to is a a life of setting our hope firmly on the things to be revealed to us in Christ, to then walking in holiness, and then finally living in fear before God. See, Christ-centered hope leads to God-honoring fear. Say that again. Christ-centered hope leads to God-honoring fear. Fear. If we follow, follow Peter's thinking, the pa- commands he gives are linked. We set our hopes so that we can be holy and therefore cons- conduct ourselves with fear. And it's worth noting, if we don't like the outcomes of our life, we will do well to kind of inspect what our true hope is. Like, if you don't like the fact that you find yourself lying, <clears throat> excuse me. If you don't like the fact that you find yourself performing some type of sin over and over again, you do well to inspect the state of your heart that actually drives those behaviors. Sometimes what we do is we just like to do behavior modification, right? I'm a good Christian, therefore I'm going to stop doing X. And and so we set ourselves to stop doing X, and for a season we might stop doing X. But after we stop paying so much attention to X, we kind of pick up with X again. Isn't that true? It's because we've taken uh, ourselves to put away a sin outside of deep faith and reliance upon Jesus Christ. We haven't inspected the state of our heart that actually drives those behaviors. See, what Peter is saying is that even in the midst of this call to holy living, Peter gives us a gospel hope, a gospel mooring on which we set ourselves. He calls us to set our hope on the grace to be revealed to us in verse 13. He reminds us that we will be holy when we are brought into God's presence. And ultimately, we are ransomed by the precious blood of Christ in verse 19. Peter strikes a delicate balance between calling us to holy living and reminding us of the grace by which we accomplish it. See, before we move too quickly from this passage, and we say, see, we should be holy. We should also do the hard work of finding the truth of the gospel in this, shouldn't we? We went through this pretty quickly, and we kind of bypassed over what Peter was saying. Verse 19, we weren't 
redeemed with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. What is this about? What's Peter talking about? If we're unfamiliar with Christian kind of lingo, and you read this passage and you're saying we are bought by blood, what's the meaning? See, we go back to Exodus 12. God was going to send the angel of death to the Egyptians. They were there in Egypt, and sure enough, God had brought nine considerable plagues uh, to the land of Egypt as God was calling Pharaoh to let his people go. And it was right before the final of these ten plagues that God was sending upon Pharaoh in Egypt that he spoke to the Israelites, and he called them to take a, a, blood, a lamb without blemish in Exodus chapter 12, verse 5, and spread its blood on the doorpost and on the lintel above. And thus the angel of death would pass over these houses and not kill the firstborn sons of Israel like he was about to do with Egypt. And so Jesus is that sacrificial lamb. It's his precious blood that was sport, poured out for us that's spread on our doorpost and as our lintel, as it were, that causes God's justice, causes God's uh, wrath at sin to pass over us so that we would be righteous in Christ. See, what has happened is that Jesus has become our Passover lamb. He is without blemish or spot, meaning he never had any sin, but lived in an absolute holiness and obedience to his father, such that when he was put to death by evil men, God vindicated his righteous life through resurrection. Just as at his baptism, the Father affirmed Jesus to be his only Son, just as your works and my works will someday be assessed by God, Jesus' life was inspected. And when he was found to be spotless, perfectly sinless, flawless in his flesh, he was vindicated by God through raising him from the dead. You're saying, where are you getting this, Jason? This is the way Peter himself spoke at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, where he's speaking to this audience of Jews, and he says this in Acts 2, 36, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus, whom you crucified. See, God has eternally put his stamp of approval on our Savior, Jesus Christ. And now that Savior advocates his holy righteousness before the throne of God even now. See, we say, be holy. But we first say that we've been made holy in Christ, made righteous through Christ. So we step back from this and we say, yes, we want to be holy. We want to be fearful. We want to set our hope fully. We recognize that our gospel proclamation is not good news if it's not interested in holiness. See, part of the good news is that God equips us to be righteous, to be holy. Christian, you have everything you need for life and godliness. Isn't that what Peter's going to tell us at the beginning of his next epistle? He says, uh, his divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness. You have fully formed words from God. You have the presence of the Spirit to deliver you into holiness. You have the resurrected life of Jesus Christ. What are we lacking to be holy? What is there that we need? But it's worth noting this morning how Peter 
calls us to carry out this holiness. See, what Peter does, what Peter's strategy is, is not to just say, buck it up, guys. Pull yourselves up by your bootstraps. Get yourself together. Come on, Christians. Let's pull it together. Let's act out the holiness we know we're supposed to do. Now, what Peter tells us is that he reminds us of the gospel. He says to set our hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Christ. He says, you shall be holy. You will be holy someday. He says in verses 18 and 19, knowing that you were ransomed from feudal ways and not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Jesus Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. See, Christian, what you need to live a holy life is to understand the hope of the gospel. You and I, we don't need a new discipleship strategy. We don't need a better accountability partner. We don't need good study materials. We don't need a Christian environment. We don't need anything but Christ and Him crucified. Do you believe this? I wonder sometimes what it will be like to stand before God And to have every action of my life investigated under the scrutiny of righteousness and holiness from God. I wonder what it would be like in that moment to see thousands upon thousands, millions of millions, billions of billions of people gather before the throne of God and for God to call out one individual and to bring him into his presence and to moment by moment inspect the motives and actions that we've performed. To hold up, hey, here's December 22nd, 1995. Jason, you were 15 years old. And in this moment, you spoke these words to your own mother. I fell short of my glory. And then to watch that moment be burned up because the righteousness of Christ covers it fully. Or take another moment. Let's take another day. It's uh, May the 5th, 2017. And Jason, you were leading music. And in that moment, your heart for me was so pure and you were so submitted to the Spirit. There were some inconsistencies and inadequacies, but all of these things are covered underneath the blood of Christ. And so here's the reward for that. Here's that moment in 2020 when you were giving yourself and and counseling and, and you were extending yourself to help another because you had rich faith in me. And here's the reward. See, I wonder what it will be like for us to stand before that, that throne, to have all of my weaknesses and inadequacies brought before a righteous and holy God, but then to claim only the blood of Christ for my righteousness and to see all of the things, all of the shortcomings that I've done burned up, as it were, before the presence of God, forgotten, cast as far as east is from west, as Psalm 103 says. That's our hope, isn't it? I want to pray this morning that we would be people who put on holiness. That we recognize we came from obedience to the gospel.
that we have a future in holiness in God's presence and that we might put on holiness now. Let's pray together. Father, I pray for that very thing. I pray, Lord, that you would purify our motives and our desires, that we wouldn't just think about sin as action, that we would think about sin as, as what we desire, what we want. You define sin as lawlessness before you. I pray, Lord, that we would submit ourselves to you fully in all things. And that by this, you would receive honor and glory in our life. That we would bring, as it were, the sacrifice of praise before you in righteous living, submitted to your lordship in Christ. I pray that you would bring this about for your glory. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. And I ask that you stand as we read our benediction this morning from Romans 16. Paul writes this. He says, Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith. To the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. See, God is working all of human history to bring about the obedience of faith. Let's be those who live and walk in holiness and obedience before our Lord. Have a great Sunday.